Welcome to the Sub Club Podcast, a show dedicated to the best practices for building and growing app businesses. We sit down with the entrepreneurs, investors, and builders behind the most successful apps in the world to learn from their successes and failures. Subclub is brought to you by RevenueCat. Thousands of the world's best apps trust RevenueCat to power in-app purchases, manage customers, and grow revenue across iOS, Android, and the web. You can learn more at revenuecat.com. Let's get into the show. Hello, I'm your host, David Barnard, and with me today, RevenueCat CEO, Jacob Eiding. Our guest today is Martin Sinowski, co-founder and CEO of Podcast App. After bootstrapping Streama into one of the largest radio streaming services in the world, Martin founded Podcast App to help enhance the joy and personal growth provided by podcasts. On this podcast, we talk with Martin about spinning off a new product from secondary product market fit, the journey of getting into YC, and the give and take of raising venture capital. Hey, Martin, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Really excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. And Jacob, always nice to have you on an episode. I'm here for the folks on the video pod. This is the first time in the enhanced studio with the neon backdrop and all that stuff. You'll have to check out the YouTube. Yeah, check it out on YouTube. Jacob has a really nice neon Revenue Cat logo in the background. There. Trick. It's not actually neon. Do you know that? They oh, don't do neon seriously? anymore. It's just, yeah. Oh, well, I mean, LEDs, we're living in the world. You know, it's the era of solid state. So everything's just, you know. Well, it looks like neon. It looks fantastic. much more. Exactly. It looks like neon, much more affordable. Anyway. We're here to talk about subscriptions, not, <laughs> not neon signs, fake neon All signs. All right. So, Martin, I want to talk about your app, podcast app. But before we get there, you started your career in apps with an app called Streama. And combined between Streama and podcast app, you're now at 100 million downloads, which just blew my mind when you told me that. So tell me about bootstrapping Streama first and kind of what the app is and what led you to build it. And then we'll get into the podcast app and everything else today. Sounds great. Yeah. It still blows my mind too, to think of like a hundred million downloads numbers in the thousands or hundreds of thousands. It's already quite impressive when you come to think of like a hundred million is beyond human ability. Yeah. yeah, yeah. To, it's pretty to, crazy to grasp. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the story with Streama, so it's a AM and FM radio streaming service, right? So if you want to listen to a radio station from any country in the world, any city in the world, you can do it through our service. And before it was an app, it was actually a website. The website is still pretty big, and we started that in 2007. And so it was a long, arduous experience. <laughs> I thought I was going to get a Lamborghini after a couple of years. It ended up being like four years of complete no revenue, no payments, no users, no nothing. And then slowly, very slowly, things started to happen. And we only launched the app, which is called Simple Radio, which is the one that has lots of installs as we're talking, many years after that, probably like 2013. So we kind of came late into the game of mobile. But it's been a company that's been around like 15, 16 years. It's profitable. I haven't been personally involved running it in the past six years since I started building Podcast App. But it was where I learned and made most of my mistakes. Yeah. And uh... <laughs> It's always good to have a starter company, you know? Yes, uh, yes, yes. Totally, ideally, totally. you know, it's even better if it's not yours. That's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> but... <laughs> That's but yeah. always uh, a good tactic. And it's kind of a recurring <laughs> theme of folks who we've had on who bootstrapped is that there's this kind of idealism of I'll start my side project and it's going to instantly become this hit. But 
Yeah, it sounds like you wandered in the desert for years before it actually made a meaningful revenue. We did wander in the desert for years and we had some false starts. It almost yeah. looked like it's going to happen and it didn't quite. I'm kind of dating myself, but at this point we were like using the Facebook platform, you know, when they were like... Oh, yeah, 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 like 0708. Yeah, that yeah, was, yeah, it was totally. coming out. So we first started like a social network for radio listeners, 2007, Facebook for everything, right? So yeah. we started doing that. Nothing kind of happened. Then they announced the apps and their platform. And we started hearing these Wild West stories. Of yeah, like, oh, it was Wild like, West. You could do it was literally anything. Yeah, yes, yes, <laughs> it was exactly. <laughs> it was really Wild West. Not super proud of the things that happened in there. Just to give people like concrete, like you could crawl the Facebook API. You could just jump from person to person. Cambridge Analytica is nothing compared to what you could do in like <laughs> yeah, 2007. For, for <laughs> us, it was like there were like notification APIs you could use to like send notifications. It's amazing, right? You come to think of it, it's kind of crazy. Like you could actually send notifications on behalf of Facebook for your app, right? These weren't push notifications because they weren't in the phone, but they were still in the desktop app, right? Yeah, there was a small window before, you know, when Farmville and all those people exploited it until Facebook shut it down. It was only like totally. a year and a half. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So we, I think we caught four months of that. And we did have some days in which we had like 130,000 daily active new users. So this kind of crazy viral loops. But they had quotas and they would close the quotas and they would like reset back after 20 days or 30 days. You kind of had to wait for the next big boost of users. The problem was they ended up shutting it down. And also the users were coming from countries that were monetizing great. So it wasn't like US users or some of those really well monetizing countries. So I think that at the peak, we made $100 in ad revenue, not the most encouraging. So that was one of the false starts in which we thought we were seeing the light and we didn't quite see it. But slowly and surely, we started figuring it out. That was the first experience. And as I was saying, like it's been profitable for the past five, six years and operated by an amazing team independently. And it's been really good. I did want to transition to the podcast app. So you built Streama. It's doing really well. You finally get the momentum going. What made you decide to jump from that to build the podcast app? Masochism. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was more positive I, I than that. I because otherwise I'd cry. <laughs> <laughs> this whole thing is really a mind game, right? You yeah. really need to, I think, laugh at it. And also it's this whole journey of understanding oneself better and why we do the things we do. I mean, at the time, and it's still our motivation. So we had this amazing 10-year run with Streama. After 10 years, as co-founders and folks on the team, you start becoming a different person, wanting different things, maybe thinking about what's your next stage, what's your next phase, and how you want to do it. And we all had different ideas for me, and also for whom ended up being my co-founder in Pakistan, who was our CTO at Streama. His name is Juan, a college mate of mine. We kind of had this desire of building like a build-to-last company. We had read this book actually by Jim Collins, right? The Build-to-Last. And they talk about long-lasting, enduring companies and companies with a purpose and with strong core values. And that idea kind of resonated with us. I think we were doing a little bit of soul-searching with Streama. And many other things happened. We personally got into podcasts because they were the future of radio from live to on demand, analog to digital, that sort of thing. And we were enamored by podcasts, just this idea of learning from the world's greatest minds, being able to obtain knowledge while you're doing something else that maybe is not particularly fun or meaningful, like washing the dishes or just driving somewhere. We started kind of toying with the idea of putting all these things together and also felt like there was going to be a big migration from radio and other mediums onto podcasts. And that was 2016. And there had already been a few, like, let's say, boom and busts around podcasts. But yeah, I'm trying that, to remember, when, when was Serial? What year was that? Serial, I'm guessing like 2014. Okay, uh, that might so have been one a, of those like false starts, yeah, right? Because yeah. podcasting's been around. Like, I remember downloading podcasts in like 2006. 
Yeah, right. Yeah, but yeah, it was yeah. like before super yeah. nerdy. You had to do it totally. in iTunes, right, or an RSS feed, and there were very few people. That was the technology. It just felt like we were in the flats for a very long time. But then this period you're talking about, there were just convergence of big money came in, like Serial, New York Times, like those started to come into it. I guess also it was just like a consumer behavior thing, right? Like normies, for lack of a better word, had to understand downloading digital, and it had to change from being RSS feeds of mp3s to being like a click button get audio content model right but that would have been right around that time so yeah yeah yeah. i think there were like many different pillars and that were being built or assembled from like content to user interface even like more penetration maybe now the devices like android cultural moments like serial which is ties back into content but there was for example stitcher stitcher was a big one right big app that they actually raised like 30 million. I think it was like around 2012, 2013, they had already raised a significant amount of money. And funny enough, I ended up meeting the founder of Stitcher. We ended up becoming friends and he was like the first advisor to podcast up. Kind of randomly made at an event here in San Francisco. But yeah, I think it was this convergence of things, you know, opportunity and trends that we were identifying, a personal passion and a desire of thinking, hey, can we build another company, make it larger, bigger, maybe more purposeful and having more of an impact in the world and hoping something that can be our last company. And maybe the last thing I want to say is I was living in Argentina at the time. That's where I'm from originally. And I also kind of had this desire, I don't know, of playing in the big leagues and doing it from Silicon Valley and doing that sort of experience. We had also felt some pain with Streama, even though we built it to like a pretty large company and it's the second largest platform for that AM, FM radio world. The first company was built from here and we were doing it from Argentina, bootstrapping it for the US, right? So oh, okay. I was going to ask, like, I didn't know if you guys use Latin America as like a wedge or if it was fully based US or So definitely Brazil is a big country for the product, but US is the main one in terms of revenue and the most important metrics. So when you founded Podcast App, did you initially bootstrap or did you go straight to raising a little bit of funding? We tried to raise and we failed quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out that moving to a different country and here, right, to this ecosystem, and maybe having as one of your accolades that you bootstrap something, even if the scale is pretty interesting, it's not that meaningful or important. It's not one of the classic, I think, pattern matching that people use, you know? It's almost an anti-signal to them, right? They're like, yeah. oh, great, you built a cash flowing business that's not dependent on capital. Like, what do I yeah, do? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? yeah, yeah, they didn't totally, have an totally. exit. Like, not, not, not what I'm shopping again? for. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> like, you're looking for money to do this again. So that was tricky. We did try to raise money at the beginning. We did a few different things, you know? Like, we applied to YC. That was part of the dream. YC, that'd be awesome. We were reading all the Paul Graham essays for the past 10 years. So we applied at the end of 2016, Rude Awakening. We got to the interview stage, but we got obliterated in the interview stage <laughs> with some like How did really... <laughs> Where did they hit you guys? Like, what weren't you I'm sitting for? down in my chair and they start like, another podcast player, we have iTunes, we have Apple, it works great. Like, why do I care about this? What is this, you know? Like, kind of really bad copying it big time. Did you not know that that's what the style of the interview is going to be? Or... I think I knew... To some extent, but I just hadn't fully internalized it. Like, kind of, I think, penetrated my defenses more than it should have. And it started us on the wrong foot. I think we were still fresh in many respects. Had you built anything at that point? Was the app live on yeah, the store yeah, yeah. when you first applied? So over 2016, we built like a first prototype within Streama. You know, we were already exploring podcasts within Streama. And we were wondering, like, are we going to do it within Streama? Is it going to be a separate company? And we ended up spinning it off. Funny enough, we started with Android. So it was only like an Android I'm saying funny enough because in the US, most monetization, at least what we've seen, is happens through iOS, right? So 
we started with Android. We had early revenue. We had some decent level of traction and we had the stream of background. And we got to the interview stage, close enough, right? I think it's 500 folks or companies getting invited to that. So pretty close. But yeah, we just got obliterated there. And we just hadn't had that much exposure pitching investors. You know, we just not something that we were used to because we were more in our own bubble and ecosystem, building our own bootstrap thing for 10 years and limited exposure, I guess, to investors. So we raised some money from Streamer co-founders. We put in some money ourselves. We started doing that. We didn't have a lot of runway, but also we didn't have a lot of costs. It was stressful. My wife and I had moved here. Cost of living expenses, you know, coming from Argentina, like 5X, 10X. I don't know what, what, what happens, you know. And all of a sudden, time is ticking. And I think we had a mixture of skill and luck, honestly, in the sense that somewhat fast, we were able to get traction. Many of the things we were doing that we learned from the Streamer days cannot translate it well, you know, when it comes to user acquisition and distribution and monetization. So very fast, we were able to start generating and building an audience and growing. Eventually we got into YC. It was another year. How'd the second interview go? Did you come in like- Much better. Ready? Much better. Much better. yelling at yeah, them yeah. right when you I come felt, in. I felt like <laughs> I'm a big Rocky Balboa fan and uh, I just felt like it was the rematch, you know? I oh it was yeah, the rematch. classic arc, right? Yeah. yeah, yes. If I felt like the, it was the rematch, we were pumped. We were in a different mindset. We tend to be very chill people, you know, very thoughtful. And we hear people out, you know, here we were ready more for a fight. Yeah. It's interesting. The interview is, I don't know what their exact philosophy of it, but it's 50% constitution and intelligence tests, right? They want to just see how fast you are on your feet. Maybe only half of it's probing the idea and your preparation. If they can defeat your idea in 30 seconds or 10 minutes, then like you're not ready, right? You need to be ahead. And you made some point there about building Streama like kind of on your own and sort of your own bubble. And when folks are considering this like bootstrap, not whatever, I do think that outside capital or outside pressure can be really helpful for a company. I found it really helpful for me when I'm not sure what to do next or like not sure how fast to go or how slow to go or whatever. Like having a little bit of that constraint or interactions with those investor types or whatever, I found can be really clarifying. It forces a little bit of discipline, right? It forced you to go back and clarify your thinking and really be able to defend your idea. Did you have the same interviewer both times? They probably don't remember no, anyway. No, different interviewers, but the second one was tough. It was Michael Siebel uh, was sure. leading the charge. I'm sure they're all tough. I don't think, I've never heard anybody say like <laughs> I breeze through it. So not to do too much YC inside baseball, but yeah, it's an intense experience. I've never been in a more loaded atmosphere than like sitting outside the interview rooms. Like I've oh, never no, seen so tough. many nervous overachieving <laughs> kids in my life outside of the YC interview yeah. rooms. And, and you get all sort of dynamics and vibes. The first time I remember like some folks started interviewing me or like grilling me on my oh that was me case, I was the know? guy like, I was the guy I was the guy like, uh, yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> parrying out in the hallway because I was so nervous it's so silly now but like I brought my mother-in-law or something had given me some like peppermint smelling oils that were like supposed to be calming you're just supposed to put a little bit on like your body and then you smell and then it's supposed to go, but no I just brought the whole bottle with me and the whole time I was just like you were drinking it I was just like <laughs> huffing it like a crazy person one thing you talked about in the first interview was them pressing you on, well, Apple has a podcast app, Google has a podcast app, Spotify, I don't know if they were big in podcasts at the time you applied, but this is a huge deal for apps. Like how big can your app really be? There may be a huge TAM, but it's also super competitive. Going into that second interview, did you prep for that question or how did that go? And how do you think about it even to this day? Like how big can the podcast app be? That's a really good question. So... There's this idea of bootstrap versus venture backed. And I think this idea of 
deciding how to do it or what to go goes beyond like the market size. I think it's also like a matter of what you're signing up for, you know, and what kind of entrepreneurial adventure you want to go through. We're coming right off it, coming off this bootstrap. So let's have that conversation, right? So like, okay, did you guys know, because I think that was the thing I didn't know. Honestly, even when we did YC, it clarified to me during YC what you're signing up for. You go from building cash flow business first to building an equities business first. You're engaging in business with some people who, you know, essentially invest in equities for a living, right? Just like any other customer, they're going to like spend some money and expect some kind of return. Did you know that? Or I mean, I'll say it, for me, I think I was stuck in the lights a little bit, right? As like, this is what you do. This is what all these founders I look up to do. Like, where were you at in that mental game? I think it was mixed feelings. I definitely was thinking a lot about it because we were very jaded or, or skewed, I guess, by a 10-year bootstrapping experience. And so we were constantly thinking, should we have done it differently? Is this a better path? So I definitely was thinking a lot about it. And to this day, I still think a lot about it because we've raised some money. We raised like a million and a half. So we didn't raise a lot of money. And that option is still on the table for us. It's not that we said, hey, we're never going to raise money again. But I do wonder, will that be the best path? So at the time, yes, we were thinking about it. I think one of the main worries for us was, is this something that's going to compromise our desire to build something for the future that can last? Is it going to limit our options too much? Is it going to compromise our lifestyle? You hear all these horror stories. I love working hard and I do think that work is my hobby to some extent. Sounds sure. It's kind of sad. No, or, no, it makes or, sense or happy. to me. But yeah. I, I do feel like there's some kind of craftsmanship around being an entrepreneur and building things. But at the same time, I want to have my family. I want to do certain things that are important to me. And so I, I guess I was afraid. And after hearing all these stories of folks getting burned out, things that sounded terrible. But here's what I would say. For sure, the more you bring outside folks, right, involving other people in the business, I think there's higher stakes. There's more responsibility. There's more accountability, I think, to what you were saying earlier, Jacob, right? You need to know if you're in the mood for that, right? And if that's what you want to sign up for, or if you want to do something that's more your terms, your freedom, optionality, always. Again, I don't want to get too, like, into the psychology, but I do think there's the issue of commitment. How comfortable do we all feel in commitment versus freedom? I think there's lots of parallels there. I've never really had a bootstrapped business. I think everybody grass is greener, right? They're always thinking that the other one is, oh, that'll solve all my problems. And in reality, it's somewhere messy middle. I think the easiest thought process I'll give to most folks is that, you know, with raising venture, it unequivocally accelerates your business, right? Like you can make the hire today, you would have had to wait a year, right? You can build the thing today that you would have had to wait. And that can make the whole thing go a lot faster. Assuming you can find product market fit and you're actually building into a market that cares, the venture capital can be really, really awesome. And you don't have to build a wholly unhealthy business too, right? Like you can just be, you know, like Revenue Cat, we operate maybe a year ahead of what we can afford, right? At any given time or so, plus or minus, depending on the quarter. Yeah, we burn venture, but also like the business is sound in a lot of ways. I think the thing that I always think about is that once you bring that money in, you're limiting your options. The number of all mutually agreed upon successes for the company is limited, right? Doesn't mean you're screwed. Doesn't mean you can't do certain things, right? Like there are stories of venture-backed companies that have returned to like a free cash flow and bootstrapping model. There are stories of companies that have, I don't know, I think Tyler's been pretty public about this, but like Gumroad is a good example. Like he raised a bunch from, I think it was Sequoia and never really got the right product market fit. And he just kind of went to them and was like, hey, I'm just not going to keep building this like you guys want. And they kind of just cashed out. They were like, yeah, okay, that's fine, right? They wrote it off and then he's gone and built it his own way, right? So there are options, but those can be rare. My advice would be, it's a bit reductive, but I think it's true. It's like when you take money from people, 
just figure out how you're going to pay them back 5, 10, 20 X. Like that's what they're going to want. That's their success criteria is a 5, 10, 20 X payday. And if you're not comfortable thinking about that math, then probably don't take the money. <laughs> right. And I saw this and it was helpful for me. It's like, I was very timid about it initially. I was like, oh, I don't know. Like it's a little scary. And I think seed and early stage investors are very good at kind of being like, nah, man. you know, pushing a little bit. Be like, yeah, yeah. You just take the <laughs> take money. It, it's not a big it. deal. It's not a big deal. But as you get further along, like it gets a little bit, they're like, I do want to return at some point. Right. Like, especially if you start to look like a winner and that goes back to that accountability, it can be good. I think for me, it's been good. It's not just the advice that I get from those folks. It's the betting and them saying, folks, I know have other winners and being like, I think you have the makings of a winner in our portfolio. So like, I want you to keep pushing. I find that helpful. But I also, for Revenue Cat, I couldn't be like 180. Actually, we're going to be a bootstrap totally. company now. Like totally. that's not viable anymore, <laughs> exactly. which is fine. It's okay in life to close doors sometimes. I just, I think the advice that I would hope anybody in this situation, that's the thing you need to think about is like, okay, what doors am I closing? And am I okay closing those doors? I don't think there's like a right answer. I mean, we've covered this on the podcast before, but it's rare to talk to somebody who's played both sides. I think that's a great summary, man. I also do wonder, again, this might be an example of grass is greener on the other side, but I do wonder if there's like a B2C versus B2B difference also. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, like I, 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 do, I do get the feeling, of course, B2B companies... They pivot, they struggle with product market fit, all of these classic surprises, I think, that all companies have. But I do feel like B2C, I don't know. That's all my experience, right? That's all I've done. And it's like, I don't know, you're trying to kind of read the culture a little bit, you know, what's going to happen in the world broadly. I mean, we all do that as entrepreneurs, but I, I do think that there's something here that it's less predictable, more artistic, maybe. Like, Yeah, well, it's, it's a hits business, right? If you look at other hits businesses, like the movies, they run a portfolio. They have yeah, like lots yeah, and lots yeah, of movies yeah. and they lose a lot of money on a lot of movies. And then they, they have a couple that make a ton. And I think what that does is it creates this really dangerous and difficult early phase where you haven't had your first hit yet. And, you know, with B2B, if you can make one customer happy, like truly happy, you have a foothold. And then you can make that two and you can make that four. And like, that's how we met. Like I met you during YC when I was looking for those first couple of customers to make happy. I emailed you because you were in YC. I was like, can I just come put my stupid SDK in your app, please. And you were gracious enough to be like, sure. And we hung out at a blue bottle for a few hours. You sent some pull requests for us, like not yeah. only including the SDK, but I think you also uh, fixed the, a couple of bugs. Like you know, sometimes bugs. when you get your car fix, they ever put some like candy on the dash or a little bit of like appreciation <laughs> gift. That was my little appreciation gift. I fixed some UI things I saw while I was in there. And it was really cool, man, by the way, because subscription wasn't big for us at the time. Right now, it's most of our revenue and the company 3X or 4X because we properly took the time to like focus on subscription. And at the time it was mostly ads and subscription was something that we had, but just for the handful of people that wanted to remove the ads. And so we gave them a subscription that was pretty hidden and it was already working. And I think you added the SDK, so we would do it through you, but it ended up like planting the seeds for what would be truly the future of our business model and our revenue. So I won't take <laughs> any credit at all for that. I will take credit for fixing the little launch UI bug though, like the image being missized. That definitely I, I take credit for, but that era, you know, go back to the B2B, B2C, as a B2B founder, you can show up to a coffee shop and implement and learn and iterate. And like, there's just much easier toeholds. And then like the flywheels are present much sooner in a B2B business. Also because of retention, our retention tends to be over hundred percent. It's just an easier game. And so going into that question, I would say it's an easier game, but in some ways more predictable game. And so going back to the raising question, I've definitely changed my tack here a lot. And I think for consumer founders, I think it's even a bigger gamble. With B2B, it's been pretty 
well shown how venture capital can be turned into like enterprise equity value and then eventually like a public company for B2C that certainly exists. I mean, there's Duolingo's of the world. There's lots of B2C and they're massively valuable. I mean, compared to even like your average B2B company in a lot of ways, but there's an order of magnitude or several orders of magnitude, fewer of them than there are. So, and even Duolingo, right? I feel like it's so much more clearly a, like an educational tool to learn a very concrete skill, which is amazing. And I think it's an amazing company, right? But I'm just compare that to maybe like a clubhouse. They raised, I think, I don't know, was it a billion? Like the, yeah, on a they, billion. Uh, uh, yeah, they raised more or, or, money on, than on they four did. billion. And killed at, the at company, the time, essentially, right? It put them in yeah. a really weird place. At the time, they were really booming. The metrics were insane. We were following it because we are in the audio sure, space, yeah. right? And we were like, whoa. And it looked like it could be the next big thing, right? And then maybe, I don't know, lockdowns, ease, COVID change, different things. And I don't know the exact metrics, but from public analytics, you can see that they have come way down. And as you're saying, like raising so much money limits your optionality. Where do you go from there? When you raise so much money, you need to do like a 10x, 15x, 20x out of that. It's really tough. Even for a company that was already with huge amount of traction and things can change rapidly. That's kind of how I see a little bit the difference between B2C and B2B. Taking back the entire conversation we've been having this last piece, think through the implications of like either path. There's no right or wrong paths. It's more about thinking through the implications of doing it either way and maybe try to see which one's the best for you. And I don't think raising money necessarily means that it's not like such a binary decision, I guess, the raising money piece, because I think it's the more you raised and the further you go, Yeah, exactly. It's a floor that right? comes up. Every incremental dollar, like the floor of possibilities gets cut off. And there's some categories of exits that kind of get smaller with time. So circling all the way back, I am really curious in that second interview, because again, I think so many consumer apps, like we've talked through now all the reasons you would or wouldn't raise money and opportunity and everything else like that. But for those who are thinking they might want to raise money, you do have to, when talking to somebody who's going to invest, convince them at some level that there's enough opportunity to be venture scale, that they will be able to get a 5, 10, 20x return on that investment. So going into that second interview, and then especially kind of knowing the first interview, part of why that went south was like, Apple has a podcast app, Google has a podcast app. How did that second interview go as far as convincing them that you were potentially a venture scale outcome? I think the interviews specifically, they weren't necessarily about size of market. The first interview I'm going to write off just because I do feel like we kind of froze, you know, and kind of <laughs> broke down under pressure. The second one, so the other person was Gustav. He used to be the head of growth at Airbnb. He's our group partner as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We worked with him and with Michael. And I think they were both believers around streaming and around audio itself. And by the way, when we didn't get in for the first batch of YC, Three months after that TechCrunch article announcing all the startups, there was another podcast company with a very oh, similar wow. pitch to ours. I think that what that means is that they were believers in podcasts to the point that they were already backing a company. Talking about market for a moment, some ways of thinking about it, at least in the case of podcasts, one way was looking at radio, the broadcast radio world, how big of an industry in ad revenue that is. And that was 10, 13 billion, something like that. And what was the time spent listening on talk radio, which is like comparable to podcasts? I think that was 25%. So with that, you could already see like, hey, there's multiple billions, right? A year that are spent on ad revenue for They're talk just radio. Just locked up in a legacy yeah, platform. Yeah, exactly. Right? Without targeting, without any type of intelligence. And the content also is not personalized, right? Like the audio content that folks are listening to. So podcasts could be much more compelling. So that was already like one way of thinking about it. But I think what YC was more interested at the time, and I can see that was the subscription angle. And there was a lot of talk at the time of building the Netflix of podcasts. 
So in that case, it was more like a bottoms up approach, kind of saying, okay, how many subscribers would we need for this to be like a hundred million dollars a year type of business? And the math added up just in the sense that it was maybe like millions of subscribers. Yeah, it's not huge. Yeah. Yeah, it's not huge, right? When you see like Spotify or Netflix, the scale they're at. I think now there's been more attempts at that from Luminary, like it's a company that started with that pitch. They raised a hundred million out of the gate. They had like 50 premium shows. And they never quite were able to do that or, or scale it. And Spotify itself, right? That's in so far, they've been the big winners in the world podcast, but they invested more than a billion dollars into doing that. There was only one moment in history when you could invest a billion dollars in like exactly. acquiring podcast content <laughs> yes. and they did yes, it when yes. they could, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, for them, it was content, but it was also like platform, you know, like hosting services, ad targeting services, and then the content and deals and networks. I guess there's different approaches how to do that estimation of the market. Right now, we're doing something actually in the world of sleep. And we recently had to do that too. Same exercise, you mean? Just Yeah, like, same exercise yeah. of like, yeah. I think the more and more you grow as an entrepreneur, or maybe you get older, the more you realize that, hey, the size of the market matters. It's really hard to build something that wins anywhere. Might as well maybe do it in a large market where there's lots of money flowing. And so we did that recently for sleep. And yeah. yeah, let's talk about that. So yeah, you've run the podcast app and then I'll cut the story short. You initially were more focused on ads and then really doubled down in subscriptions and have been very successful growing it as a subscription business. Also, I just want to point out the uh, all-time greatest name of a company ever, which is to name it the SEO perfect name, right? It's like A1 podcast app that you put in the phone book, right? The podcast app. By the way, app, right? I would love to give you like a really inspirational, like we did this workshopping session, this retreat, you know, off the grid for five days and we came up with that. But it was actually in the streamer, like within streamer, we had to launch the prototype, I think, for Android. And we had to put a name on Google Play. And I don't know, someone on our team came up with it said, the podcast app. app. It's, so it it's so good. It's so good. I mean, if, something it straightforward. It's probably going to help with SEO or something. If you'd gone to the stupid retreat, you would have come up with some name that wasn't even in words and like nobody's going to remember, right? The podcast app is so good. It does create sometimes. Have you downloaded the podcast app? It's like, well, which podcast yeah, yeah, app? Yeah. But then you get a really nice moment where you're like, the podcast app, right? It's like the titular. Anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the podcast app is doing really well, but recently you did decide to become a multi-product company. Talk us through that exercise in both thinking through becoming a multi-product company and then with the sleep product, that kind of market discovery. Yeah. So podcast app, we got it to like 130,000 paid subscribers. So that's a number we're pretty proud of. But yeah, talking about multi-product company, I think my first rule of multi-product companies is Try not to become a multi-product company. Uh, <laughs> <The> masochism. <laughs> so, yes, yes. No, because there is this issue of focus. I think for us, it came from a place of, hey, we've been at this for like six years now with the podcast app. We got it to meaningful scale. But what's the next path forward for us? And we have a team of 20 folks, highly capable people. How do we use our time in the best possible way? And continuing with this idea of building large businesses, but also in a way that has positive impact, which still continues to be a through line for us since those days at Streamer, starting into the podcast app, right? So we came up on this opportunity on sleep. It wasn't like a systematic approach for like, some folks can be very regimented in exploring opportunities and really opening up the aperture and lens. There's a backstory of lots of experiments that we did within podcast app that didn't necessarily pan out in terms of like, where can we meaningfully differentiate beyond like the essence of podcasts? And we tried like experiments around education from creating our own content to like creating thematic playlists with 
editors and curators to creating like a social podcasting learning club, kind of like a book club, you know, over WhatsApp. Like, I mean, we did all sorts of crazy things in these past few years with the goal of exploring what's the next big leap in growth. While doing all of this, we came up across the use case of sleep, podcast for sleep. We were seeing lots of people using our app at night for sleep. And it turns out podcasts can have a hypnotic effect. Hopefully not ours because ours is very engaging, <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but other podcasts can have a bit of a hypnotic effect. And so people like forget what about their concerns, what happened during the day, you know, and they're able to like fall asleep, similar to maybe reading a book, but without light in your face. For some people, it works better. We started looking into sleep. We also went through our own personal journeys with sleep, you know, being stressed as entrepreneurs. I also had a, my first daughter two years ago. And so different experiences with sleep and we learned a lot. We did all sorts of weird experiments from like cooling down our, my mattress to like looking like a dork at night with the blue light blocking glasses, <laughs> you know, or, or wearing the aura ring for many years. So kind of similar thing to podcasts. We saw some like adjacent type of opportunity. We have personal experience and again, we started looking into a space and it does look like there's a huge amount of people with sleep problems. It's only getting worse. And the money that's being spent is really big. Like it's huge. In the US, it looks like 30 billion a year. Multiple categories, of course, from the sleep medication to like the mattresses. We started doing interviews with people who had improved their sleep. And it turns out that usually people, they buy lots of products in many different subcategories of the market because they're trying to, for them, it's about improving their sleep and getting it solved. You know, they don't care. They don't think, oh, I'm only going to buy a mattress. I'm a mattress purchaser, you know, and I'm only going <laughs> to stick here, big, you know? Big mattress person, you know? That's yes, kind of my big thing. mattress person, exactly. <laughs> so, because there's some controversy sometimes, you know, in terms of like, okay, what's really the market that you can, you're not building a mattress, you're building a mobile app. Are you going to take dollars away from mattresses? Are you going to capture any of that value or not? And I think there is an opportunity of doing that because you just help people sleep better. Maybe have less of a need for buying other products. Or maybe you can be the person who directs them to buy the right product for them. That's going to help them and maybe capture some of the value there. That's kind of how we came to this new opportunity in sleep that we're pursuing. Started with audio. We started, as we learned more, getting into using AI and specifically like LLMs to give people like a personalized sleep coaching experience. Because a lot of that has to do with changing your habits and changing your routines and changing your thinking around sleep. And it's not easy to do. Like some people go to doctors, but they're expensive or hard to find or other folks, they just do it themselves by listening to podcasts and watching videos and being on TikTok and learning there and then trying and error. So yeah, we're trying to create something that solves it better and faster for people. Sounds like with the podcast app, you were looking for that second level product market fit. Like we were talking about with competing with Google and Spotify and Apple and everyone else, like how much money is there in podcast app and what are the opportunities? So it's really cool that through trying to find that second level of product market fit with the podcast app that you actually came upon the sleep opportunity. And then also just even looking at how much more willingness there is to pay and all of those kind of opportunities. But now you're a two product company. How has it gone? And the sleep app has already launched. How did you get those early users for the sleep app? Yeah, I wish we had another three hours to talk through <laughs> all the distribution and the things that you did with both Streama and the podcast app. And now the third app, like you've kind of run the gamut. But yeah, give us a speed run of what it was like bootstrapping inside an already successful company, this new app, this secondary product. I do think we all share like this vision that distribution is extremely important. You've always been really good at acquiring users. I think you've been one of the founders. I think it's always been just very comfortable doing that. Yeah, I think the most important piece is to have folks realize first and foremost that it's a skill set that you need to build. 
that you need to continuously hone in because channels change, tactics change. We're seeing that right now, right? The things that were working for us, maybe for a certain type of business works and maybe doesn't translate as well for a different one. Maybe the maturity of the channel is different from what it was earlier on in which there's more low-hanging fruit. I mean, back to the Facebook example at the time, right? That we were sharing at the beginning, Wild West. But I think the most important piece is first realizing this is important and then just spending a lot of time and energy to try to learn it. And ways of learning it, I think this podcast is a great one, actually. I've learned a lot from listening to you guys interview other, other practitioners who are like really deep into paid or ASO. I think this is the most important piece, you know, the mindset and taking the time and making it a priority because I think it's easy to get obsessed over product and product is important, of course. But in this day and age, like product alone won't do it. And many times a worse product wins over a better product just because they have better distribution, right? And this whole idea about the Teams versus Slack example and the growth charts are like amazing. Back to your question, David, on how do we get this thing going inside of like... So this sleep product is live. It's called REST. And if you want to check it out, it's getrest.app, A-P-P. And it's live and it has a mixture of like this audio content I was telling you. It's the largest audio catalog for falling asleep and going back to sleep really, really fast. And we're building this AIPs, which we're really excited about and... It's in like early access right now. And so how do we get the initial users for that? It's a mixture of cross-promotion. Cross-promotion helps with our existing app because we already have an audience and the use case translates. So we were able to target folks at night, for example. That's something you don't have the first time around. Right? We did that at, at Elevate coming from MindSnacks. We sent out like a blast to our MindSnacks list. Like, hey, if you're interested. And when you're in that like zero to one, those little boosts are a big deal. Totally. For Streama, which we had absolutely nothing, you know, going for us, no money, no nothing. And SEO ended up being the thing for us. Long tail SEO was huge. So it just takes time, right? It takes time. You need to be able to like survive as that thing kicks in and starts working. And I also do wonder how it's going to be now in this world of generative AI and search will change, SEO will change or not. I don't know, but I think it's a really interesting discussion. But yeah, so cross promotion is something we do. We also have money. So we yeah. have money from the business. So we're able to like buy users, get that going and not to an insane amount, but to a good enough amount for us to like be able to understand if your product's working, get some metrics. Learn, right. Do you consider like your CAC LTV to be like a product market fit indicator? I guess. I mean, if you wanted to be a viable business, it probably needs a, but do you use, I mean, cause like you can just purely use like retention metrics, but do you also look at revenue and scalability metrics? I don't know if I look at it like the CAC to LTV, like we look at it quite closely just because we would love to be able to scale paid acquisition even further. And that's being a constraining factor because we're not there yet. Maybe it's product market fit and it's the right term. Like I just see it. this needs to work for this to be viable, right? Do we have a viable business here or not? I don't think it's totally unindicative of product market fit, right? Because businesses with product market fit tend to be good businesses. That's the market part. And so I think it's interesting to look at early, though I do see some founders like over rotate on it too soon, right? Well, they'll be like trying to balance that equation right at the beginning. You've been in this long enough, you know, like you don't need to necessarily have a dollar ten for every dollar spent. What matters is learning. What matters is iteration. Yeah, yeah. And, and in my experience, like actual TV thing, it's surprisingly hard. Like, yeah, oh, it's, yeah, it's not easy. And my conclusion, at least so far, I guess, consumer world with this type of products, you know, you need a big organic piece to make everything work. The core product yeah. has to be good if enough. If it's SEO, to, to ASO, yeah. or virality or whatever it is, there needs to be a really core organic piece to make the system work. At least that's how it's been in like all of our cases. I think it's a great place to wrap up. It was so fun having you on the podcast and I can't wish we had another three hours to go. Maybe, telling maybe you, we should just do the, the Joe Rogan I keep Rogan pitching the thing, Rogan just, style four hours. Just, just talk. I mean, you, you have the logo at the back. The, 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 yeah, the, the, I've already got it so going here. Yeah. 
I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Somehow they keep it going. I don't understand how these long podcasts do it, but like we have a lot in our brains. We could talk for hours. We do. We could. Anything you wanted to share as we wrapped up, Martine, are you hiring? Anything you wanted to share about your apps and business as we wrap up? Just check out our products and send us feedback. And so it's podcast.app and getrest.app. Really curious to see what you think. And we keep on working on both of them, making improvements and trying to like really finesse them. So yeah, we'd love to hear from the audience and get feedback. And also, I'm also curious to learn about new growth playbooks. So if you have like a growth secret, you know, that you that <laughs> send it only wanna, to Martin. Yeah. <laughs> and I wanna, want to trade notes and we can trade my growth secrets for your growth secrets. I'm always interested in learning. I really consider myself a student of this discipline. And I think this audience is quite a special one. Awesome. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you today. Thank you for having me on. Thanks so much for listening. If you have a minute, please leave a review in your favorite podcast player. You can also stop by chat.subclub.com to join our private community.